0: This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Joshua Tallis, the author of the book The War for Muddy Waters: Pirates, Terrorists, Traffickers, and Maritime Insecurity. Joshua Tallis is an analyst at the Center for Naval Analyses, where he specializes in maritime security, irregular threats, and issues of naval and national security strategy. At CNA, he conducts and directs political military analysis for the Navy and Department of Defense. Josh holds a PhD in international relations from the University of St. Andrews and a bachelor's degree in Middle East studies from George Washington University. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Muddy waters refers to the brown waters surrounding the littorals, as opposed to the blue waters of open sea. Can you talk a little bit about the littorals and why they are important for naval strategy?
2: Absolutely, yeah. And it's a great question, and it leads to one of my favorite topics to talk about, which is um, littorals as a geographic area. And I know it's a little strange maybe to think that somebody can have a favorite geographic feature, but the littorals are a really interesting geographic concept because most other points of geography that we're familiar with that we learn about in school are fixed, or certainly at least the the regions are fixed. A mountain is a mountain, and that doesn't really change. Uh, You know, a plateau is a plateau. That doesn't really change. But the littorals change over time because fundamentally they're defined as the sea space that can be affected by events and activities and technologies on land and the land space that can be affected by events and technologies and capabilities at sea. And so it's this constantly shifting space where the ocean meets the coastline. And it's a really dynamic environment. And I say that it changes over time because technology changes over time. So, for example, uh, even folks who might not be experts in maritime security, or ocean governance would be familiar with the idea of the territorial sea. It's the part of the ocean that a country has sovereign control over. It's now 12 nautical miles that's fixed uh, in international law, but it started at about three nautical miles. And where did that range come from? Well, it was the distance that a cannon could shoot a cannonball with a favorable wind. And then as technology has expanded, now you have aircraft carriers that can affect events deep inland. And so it's this fascinating space in between. So it's a bit of a long-winded answer, but it's really critical when you're talking about maritime security because it's not just about the events that are taking place at sea. It's about the interplay of actors at sea and the technologies they bring to bear with actors on land and the technologies they bring to bear and how those fuse in this really interesting dynamic space where those two meet.
0: This is an interesting lens to view maritime security through, especially because a significant portion of the world's population lives on the coast. And you point to some large coastal cities where the government lacks the ability to enforce the rule of law. How have the populations that live in those areas adapted to cope with the changes in governance and technology?
2: One of the things that really got me interested in this topic was predictions for changes at sort of this macro global scale over the next half century to a century or so. And there are several trends that are driving at this simultaneously and one a uh, sort of typology that I really enjoyed was one that David Kilcullen put together where he has these four mega trends that he talks about, rapid population growth, urbanization, connectedness, something he calls littoralization, which is connected to that concept of the littorals that we just talked about. So put together what that means is overall the global population is growing. Simultaneously, that population is increasingly condensed into urban spaces that are connected with each other and connected to the outside world. And as particularly relevant to this conversation, all of that is taking place predominantly in the littoral spaces, in these coastal spaces. So already, for example, about half of the world's population lives within about 30 miles of the coastline. So for uh, an average healthy person, that's a day's walk to the coast. Um, So it really drives these questions of what are the implications for where that growth takes place and what does that mean from a security perspective? So to drive that into that point that you said about these these cities that have difficulty absorbing that level of population growth and delivering services, uh, that's both health services but also security services, to this large population, I borrowed an idea uh, from Richard Norton, writing in the Naval War College Review, who talks about this concept of feral cities. Uh, So he's talking about this idea That even in countries that aren't failed states, you might have pockets, cities where governance has collapsed. And what are the consequences of that? And then you can draw that theme out even further and say, even in cities that are functioning, many international cities in the global south are vibrant, functioning economies with real governments. There may still be pockets of those cities that are, for all intents and purposes, feral, to borrow from from, from Norton's terminology, meaning that there's no government oversight, and, and somebody steps in, right? There's not just anarchy in these spaces. So who steps in? What are the consequences of actors, often violent, belligerent, sometimes criminal, sometimes terroristic, sometimes insurgent, who step in to fill the void on those spaces? And that really seemed like a challenging Complicated, messy security question, and one that wasn't going anywhere. Considering those mega trends that I just mentioned,
0: the juxtaposition of what you were just talking about with the discussion of naval strategy in your introduction is really interesting. And I want to read you a question that you pose, uh, saying, "What what if control of the sea has been achieved by any meaningful measure, and disorder remains?" and this question is interesting because it frames up the traditional goals of sea power and naval strategy with the current operating environment. Can you talk more about that?
2: Absolutely. And and so, well, I, I guess every author is always a little bit terrified when someone quotes their own work back at them. But thankfully, I think I have an answer to this one. And it, it's really what drew me into the subject um, in the specific format that I addressed in this book, which is talking at this strategic level. And you can think of this as sort of a a challenge related to the concept of overmatch, right? You've got this incredibly capable military force, right? For all intents and purposes, the U.S. Navy has no peers. But what are the consequences when that doesn't really make a difference when you're dealing with these incredibly small-scale threats? And you know, to, to think of a parallel from on land, this is an issue that the U.S. Army and the Marine Corps had to deal with considerably in Iraq and Afghanistan. And this reemergence and flourishing and renaissance of counterinsurgency and counterterrorism literature where on land you have this incredibly robust, capable – Land power, but it doesn't really matter because it can't effectively leverage those capabilities, tanks and artillery and precision munitions, in a way that effectively addresses the insurgency without rethinking the way it uses that power. And so, really, a big impulse for this project and for this book is what does that mean in the maritime space? And my conclusion, as I sort of draw out throughout the book, is that. You know, it's not really about things. The, the Navy has a tendency to gravitate directly towards, well, what do we need to build? What do we need to buy? And those are good questions because these are expensive projects and it takes a very long time to build a ship. And if you build it right, it's going to be in service for decades. So you want to get that process right. But fundamentally, it's really an issue of strategy and conceptualization. How do you bring this overmatch to bear in a way where, yes, you've effectively dominated the seas? But how do you deal with these small scale issues that really have salience and matter in people's lives?
0: And the book looks to apply the broken windows theory drawn from policing and apply it to maritime security to address some of these issues. Can you talk about the broken windows theory and how you came to use this as a framework for your analysis?
2: Sure. So I'll I'll step back for a second and say, you know, well, why did I even sort of look to criminology? In the first place, and the reason is that there's this fascinating tension in the maritime sphere where it's incredibly complicated to operate there. It is expensive, as I mentioned, to build a robust maritime capability, to sustain that capability, certainly to operate at long distances as the US Navy does, and occasionally the Coast Guard as well. That's an incredibly expensive, robust enterprise. And so the predominant authority acting in that space is almost never police, it's almost always navies, occasionally Coast Guards and similar constabulary forces. Simultaneously, the challenges at the low end of the threat spectrum really don't look a whole lot like familiar war-like issues that most Navy strategy and most noted Navy strategists have written about. And so there's this interesting tension where The predominant actor at sea is a Navy, but the predominant threat from a maritime security perspective is is actually mostly criminological. And so the question that raises is how do you adapt criminological theories to be implemented by actors, in this case navies, who don't have a whole lot of familiarity with that world? And that's a major thrust throughout the book. And what I fell on was the broken windows theory as a vehicle for talking about that. And so for background, broken windows theory originates with two criminologists uh, in uh, an Atlantic magazine article in 1982. George Kelling and James Wilson are the authors uh, of that article. And I'd encourage listeners to go seek it out. Unlike you know traditional academia, this is not uh you know a a long winded difficult to read article behind a paywall this is an atlantic magazine article that really lays out their premise which is fundamentally that crime and actions of crime are not by themselves rational actor choices right that people are actually responding to subtle stimuli or signals in their environment That has a real and measurable effect on the overall rate of crime, including violent crime in a neighborhood. And so an example that they pose is if an individual walks by an abandoned building and it has a broken window, there's a greater likelihood that the next time somebody walks past that building, more windows will be broken. Why is that the case? It's not because there's a disproportionate distribution of window breakers and window lovers in cities. It's that in certain neighborhoods where those windows get fixed right away, there's a signal being sent that people care about this environment, that they're investing in it, that there is enforcement in this space, and people are deterred from taking criminal or aggressive or antisocial actions in that space On the other hand, if you're consistently walking by a building that has a broken window in it and nobody's doing anything about it, then what you're internalizing is there isn't a whole lot of self-efficacy in this community, that there isn't enough either motivation or resources or attention for people to take safety and security in this space seriously. And so you might act accordingly. And so if I can add sort of a... Uh, a corollary that might be more familiar to an average uh, listener's life. It would be, imagine you walked into a conference room with a styrofoam coffee cup and you finished your coffee while you were in a meeting. If the room was spotless and there was a trash can in the corner, you would throw your coffee cup into the trash can. It wouldn't necessarily be some long-winded thought process you went through. You would do it. On the other hand, if the room was filthy and it was littered with coffee cups, there's a stronger likelihood that you would simply leave yours on a pile with everybody else's, right? And so that's this really small-scale example, but it really manifests at a macro scale and has real implications. So the theory would hold for criminality in in an urban environment.
0: Another key theme in this book is hybrid threats. And you mentioned dimensional threats spanning from terrorism to piracy to trafficking how do these hybrid threats present challenges for maritime security and how are they relevant in this framework
2: that follows on great from that that introduction to broken windows what i explore in the book are two key threads that one could take away from the broken windows theory so i'm not a criminologist i'm a political scientist and so i wanted to tread fairly lightly on on another discipline while really believing that interdisciplinary work is is useful and had a lot to say for the maritime security context so i focused on what i consider to be two critical lessons from broken windows theory the first is what i just explored which is that crime is based on context and that if you can affect signals of disorder then you can drive down overall acts of criminality. What police found when they implemented broken windows inspired policing in different cities is also that crime is multidimensional, that if you arrest an individual, for example, for fair beating on the New York city subway system, you might find that a significant proportion of the individuals that you detain are also wanted on a class A felony or a misdemeanor charge or are carrying a weapon. And so by policing one form of insecurity you're having this multidimensional effect on a variety of crimes so to answer your question more specifically when you bring that into the maritime context it invites you to think about whether or not the threats that we talk about in the maritime sphere are as isolated as they seem so a lot of the literature this is both academic literature but also the strategy and policy literature is predicated on a counter something approach so you have counter piracy Counterterrorism, terrorism counter-narcotics, counter-human trafficking. It goes on. And it presents this very siloed attitude towards the individual threats or acts of criminality that you are looking to prosecute. But when you take this multidimensional perspective, it invites you to consider, are these really as siloed as they seem? And if not, could addressing one more effectively— also have derivative implications for affecting all other items. And so you can think of a couple of examples. There's something called uh, illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing, IUU fishing, which has become something people are more interested in now, as it could lead to potential conflicts uh, in East Asia, for example. But there's a real uh, interplay between illegal fishing and piracy in many parts of the world, that as traditional artisanal fishermen lose out to illegal uh, international criminal fishing syndicates in various parts of the world in the Gulf of Guinea, or for example, uh, off the coast of Somalia, that it may lead to an increase in piracy. There is a clear relationship between illegal fishing and human trafficking. We know that there are relationships between gun running and drug smuggling in the Caribbean. Uh, we've seen that there's a relationship between illegal oil theft at sea and insurgency in Nigeria. And so this multidimensional lens is a really interesting way of thinking about where can we find leverage if I'm really interested in addressing piracy, but I'm having a hard time as a U.S. policymaker incentivizing another country, for example, Indonesia, to take that issue seriously. Well, it turns out Indonesia is very interested in addressing illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing. And so, hey, let's invest in that because I know given the multi multidimensional character of maritime threats, that I will also have downstream implications for the actual issue I'm looking to
0: address. You touched on the disaggregation of threats and how that may present challenges in understanding systemic issues in a policy arena. And similarly, the book takes a multidisciplinary approach and you highlight a potential shortcoming in security studies. And I'll, I'll read you another quote here. Uh, subfields on terrorism and piracy have grown rapidly, offering immeasurable value in their detailed investigations of specialized topics, and yet the growth of sub-disciplines has also led to the ghettoization of literature, as we run the risk of increasingly ignoring the gray space in between as a matter of disciplinary purity. And because you spoke to using criminology and other disciplines in this book— I want to ask how did that affect your research, and how can we leverage multidisciplinary approaches and security studies in general?
2: It, it It made it I think a really fascinating research project to undertake, but also one that had real risks or at least potential risks. so I, I work for a research institution now, but if you are pursuing a more traditional academic role, An interdisciplinary project, certainly for a PhD, which is the basis uh, for the original research that led to the book, does have real risks involved in terms of your ability to land comfortably in an academic department, which are based on, to some extent, purity in these academic silos. But I think as I lay out in the book, there are these really messy Challenges in the security space, and I'm sure this extends to other disciplines across international relations, political science, and beyond, where there's a lot of value to be derived from pulling from interesting work in other spheres. And the broken windows theory is actually an interesting example in and of itself, that it has become very popular as a way of thinking about a whole host of sociological issues. And so, for example, and this is something I, exhort, I explore in the book uh, as as justification for why you can pull this theory into other disciplines, it's, it's actually been used fairly widely in the public health discourse, right? And taking this almost epi, epidemiological approach to crime. So there's this, this interesting relationship between crime and public health for a long time, where criminology has borrow this epidemiological construct from public health and now public health borrowing this signals of disorder concept from criminology. And so that's an example outside, obviously, the sphere that we're talking about of where this cross-pollination has been really valuable. To your example, though, what I've been concerned about is there's so much great work being done on, I don't, I would say niche, but I don't mean it in a negative connotation, but on niche research on piracy in a given region, which is entirely necessary to give scholars and academics and policymakers understanding of very specific regions. The consequence has been, though, is that we really lack large-scale strategy, conceptual ideas for how to tackle the broad range of maritime insecurity, let alone piracy. So, for example, We don't really have a consistent counter-piracy approach from one region to another because it's been very hard to pull the discipline out to a macro lens to talk about this issue, not at a regional and incredibly micro perspective, but to draw out those larger implications. And that's pretty important from a policy perspective, because policy is infrequently made at at deeply micro levels. And so we need to be able to pull out and have this macro conversation. And I think it's interdisciplinary approaches are a great way to force us into that conversation.
0: So I want to shift gears and talk about what's really the foundational case study of the book, the Caribbean. And first, you lay out the narcotics trade in the region. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, so obviously, you know, it won't come as a surprise to folks that there's a long storied history uh, between the narcotics trade and the Caribbean. Central to what I wanted to pull out was first, how heavily the narcotics trade relies even now on the maritime space, even though we're most familiar in its modern iteration with drugs, for example, either coming over the land border between the United States and Mexico or, or coming in in from over the air for example, which is something people are familiar with from the 1980s cocaine flying into Miami there is still this heavy reliance on trafficking narcotics over the maritime space and that that moves in multiple directions and for multiple reasons and so, Colombia remains a sort of source region for much of the cocaine specifically that moves north to the United States. And even if the final port of entry into the United States comes over a land border, the first movement of narcotics is still often at sea, moving from Colombia to, for example, Honduras on a Western Caribbean route uh, or island hopping along an eastern or central Caribbean route. Even if, again, the ultimate port of entry is going to be over a land border, there's still an important maritime component to this trade. That being said, we also see considerable trends and movements over time in the routes for narcotics. So over the last several years, Puerto Rico has become a much greater point of entry for narcotics into the United States because you can reach it from the Caribbean and it's already there for... In the United States, despite the fact that you haven't hit the mainland yet, one of the big points I wanted to pull on, though, was that that question of of why do the trends keep bouncing back and forth and why is it so hard to effectively interdict drugs? And this gets back to that question of, of criminology. And so from an interdiction perspective, it's a really inefficient means for addressing the narcotics trade, but then as I explore, a whole range of, of maritime insecurity issues. And it's based off of a mid-century model of policing where you had police in there, cruisers, waiting for dispatch calls to try and interdict a crime as it's happening. And it, it's the problem in a maritime sphere is that the space is just too big, right? The Coast Guard, which is the predominant actor in, in the Caribbean, but the Navy as well, just don't have enough resources to conduct the interdictions. Huge amounts of known drug movements go unimpeded because there isn't a helicopter or a ship to address the challenge. And so interdiction as a model is insufficient. At the same time, and part of the, the reason why we see these cycles of where narcotics move both in the Caribbean as well as in the Pacific and over land is something called the balloon effect, which is when you squeeze enforcement in one area, the air mostly just goes somewhere else. And so you you dry up a certain pathway, but because of authority resource limitations, you can't be everywhere at once. And so if you strangle the Central Caribbean route, then the drugs just flow on either side. They'll take the Eastern or the Western Caribbean route. And so, again, that speaks to some of the challenges and failings in this interdiction model, which leads back to, well, what has criminology, what has policing learned in the last 30 years to get around this really problematic, slow difficult-to-resource interdiction model. And again, that speaks to, well, how do you look at the environment as a whole? And so you rightly state, you know, the Caribbean is really a central case study. sort of a proving ground for this theory. And I spend a lot of time first building the world that we should see in order to understand why the enforcement mechanisms and the concepts we have for enforcement right now are insufficient to rise to that challenge and then how we might look to different concepts of enforcement as a way for getting around
1: that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: So after the discussion of the narcotics trade, you move into talking about trafficking. And you mentioned weapons trafficking and human trafficking, as well as how maritime security efforts can really have downstream effects on these areas. Could you talk more about how trafficking and the narcotics trade are related?
2: Absolutely. So and this speaks to really pulling at the thread of this concept of multidimensionality that that particularly the organizations that are involved in trafficking Don't just do one thing. So, for listeners who are not particularly engaged with issues of transnational security, not just maritime security, a lot of us have this inbuilt perception of transnational crime as organized. In fact, it's often in the name, transnational organized crime. And we have this very hierarchical corporate perspective on the way that international organizations are structured. And that's really not how much crime, particularly in the Caribbean region, takes place anymore. You've got these vast networks of what one author I read refers to as an adhocracy, where you've got myriad middlemen who are moving a whole host of what I'll call product Over space, and there's no great central coordinating feature. And in that environment, it's not necessarily very helpful to think about exclusively narcotics pathways because it's not just narcotics that are moving on these pathways. These organizations and these ad hoc networks are involved in moving whatever it is they can move because that's how they make their money. And so, for example, they might traffic in people. They might also smuggle people, and there is a subtle but important difference between those two. And so you've got these these migrations of, of irregular movements of individuals over the maritime space, potentially leveraging the same pathways, even the same individuals, the same boats, the same aircraft, the same trucks that are moving narcotics. Likewise, specific to the narcotics trade, there's a reverse flow that really doesn't get talked about a whole lot in sort of the general uh, public discourse, which is that it's a really lucrative gig. And there's a lot of cash that's generated. And that bulk cash has to go somewhere, specifically back to the individuals who make up this ad hocracy, who are the middlemen, and the individuals who are protecting the movement of narcotics as well as growing the actual narcotics. And so you've got this reverse flow of trafficking in bulk cash. And then this whole process is lubricated not just by money and the corruption that it feeds, but guns as well, because this is a dangerous task and it's illegal. And so it often relies on the infusion of weaponry into, in this case, the Caribbean, but this would apply sort of wherever you have these constellations of of trafficking networks. And so you've got this robust movement of people money narcotics drugs and it's not some vast organized conspiracy it's it's often done in an incredibly ad hoc manner but we shouldn't let that disguise the fact that it's still often the same pathway as the same individuals and so it speaks to that point that i made earlier which is if you focus on this multidimensional component that by addressing instability or signals of disorder in one sphere so if you tackle human trafficking because it's an absolutely abhorrent crime then you may also find that you are either arresting individuals who are involved with or familiar with trafficking in guns or bulk cash or uh, illegal uh, animal products or narcotics or or you may find that uh, other illegal products are actually on the vessels that you interdicted and so there's a really sort of negative synchronization taking place among transnational criminal groups, but provides potentially an opportunity for enforcement to take take a much wider perspective. But again, it requires that the authorities that are conducting these enforcements and prosecutions – have the remit to look wider. Oftentimes, if they're doing drug interdictions, they're just looking for drugs. They might not necessarily have the training to identify victims of human trafficking, or they may not have the legal recourse and remit to do so. Or host nations, if these interdictions take place co- closer to Honduran or Ecuadorian or El Salvadorian waters, might not have the necessary laws on the books to address those issues. And so you may have arrested somebody who was blatantly conducting human trafficking, but there are insufficient laws on the books. In a given partner nation to prosecute those individuals, and so they end up going back into this network, feeding once again narcotics trades, gun trades, trades in individuals. There's a there's a constellation here, and so I'm really pushing to to looking at this much more systemic perspective.
0: And you're describing some of the same things we see in the legal economy replicating in illicit activity in terms of what we call the gig economy where we have subcontracting or people moving illegal items who maybe don't have a direct connection to a criminal organization.
2: And that that has really interesting implications and brings in that first part of broken windows that I talked about earlier which is context is that you're absolutely right. I mean this is this is the gig economy version in uh, in an in an illicit economy for many of these individuals Trafficking in X, whatever it may be, is not necessarily their full time job. They may have a perfectly licit full time job. They might be a taxi driver. There's a story I relate from an author, Moises Naim, about an individual who runs a construction company and finds out that vast numbers of his employees are using company vehicles to also trafficking in narcotics. And he says, well, you know, this is the world we live in. What are you going to do? Arrest everybody in the town? And that speaks to this element of context because you, you really can't round everybody up and put them in prison. It's both inhumane and inefficient. And so how can authorities and states and policymakers think about Changing the overall context in which individuals who have these minor points of contact with illicit economies that fuel this overall trade in all things illicit. How can authorities and policymakers send signals to those individuals that they care about them and that they should care about the safety and security of their community? This is a two-way street. It's not about policing against communities. It's about policing with them, which involves gaining their trust. It involves stamping out corruption. It involves listening to and understanding the needs of those communities, which, again, loops in this multidimensional component that communities might be interested in addressing certain types of security issues that aren't at the top of the list for a state or local government. But by addressing those items may have an overall beneficial effect. So I'm not making the claim that this is easy to institute, but it gives us a framework for understanding what should be addressed and what's important. And it really puts communities in the driving seat and in large part because in many parts of the world, whole communities are involved in some small or big way in some part of either a gray or black market. And how do you address that in a way that's humane while effective at the same time?
0: And I think that loops back to the introduction where you talk about governance And the individuals who are trying to survive in these coastal communities where they're really dealing with concentrated urban poverty. And it speaks to the third part of this case study where you talk not only about the bulk cash smuggling and money laundering operations, but also weak and vulnerable institutions and how those affect the ability of the state to enforce the rule of law. So how did you examine those governance institutions in this context?
2: So this was an interesting challenge because I didn't want to ignore the corruption issue, as I just mentioned, you know, and as you alluded to, it's an important part of the conversation, but how does it fit in? to this idea of broken windows and either crime being context-based and crime being multidimensional. And as I did the research, I found that it actually loops in quite well. So from it's a little bit obvious from the multidimensional perspective, but just to state the case on that front, corruption and weakening institutions are a fairly cost-effective way for illicit actors to gain uh, to to grease the wheels, so to speak, right, to make it easier and less costly over time for them to do business in a certain area. And so by addressing corruption, you addressed a whole host of issues of both maritime insecurity, but also insecurity more generally, because the institutions that are being corrupted, specifically police forces or local constabulary or military forces are directly the institutions that are responsible for addressing these acts of insecurity. And so that has profound ripple effects across the entire constellation of issues of insecurity that take place at sea. So the the case for multidimensionality and corruption in weak institutions was was fairly linear. What I found was also very interesting was the relationship between corruption and context is that It's near impossible to get communities to partner with law enforcement when they see or believe law enforcement to be a corrupt institution. And the types of signals that that sends to communities about who's on their side, who they can safely report to, and it it encourages some individuals at least – To act more favorably or interact more with a gray or black market economy. And so it's not just about the direct ripple effects that corruption and weak institutions and poor governance has towards issues of insecurity, but especially if you're interested in promoting some concept of community policing – corruption sends a fairly explicit signal to individuals in their communities that they are, in fact, not cared for, that nobody's fixing that broken window. And that really doesn't incentivize communities to fix the window themselves because nobody's got their back. And so the context element, while a little bit more perhaps academic and theoretical as the way I explain it, matters because you know, there's the old phrase, all politics is local. Well, all crime is local also. We talk about transnational issues, but transnational crime doesn't take take place in, you know, transnational vania. It takes place in a real community with real people who either do or do not feel like they have enough self-efficacy and enough input and enough buy-in from local authorities and enforcement to do something to effectively secure their livelihoods and their communities. And so thinking about it from that context angle and that signaling angle, I found to be really fruitful and helpful.
0: So taking it out of the theoretical, you have a strong example coming out of Jamaica in the book and talking about the garrison districts. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, so that's an example uh, that I uh, learned about through David Kilcullen's book, Out of the Mountain. So I want to give due credit to him on that. And he describes a story where the U.S. government had effectively pushed the Jamaican government to go after a major international drug trafficker who is held up in what are known as garrison districts. And garrison districts in Jamaica are these interesting spaces that actually feeds back to this concept on feral pockets, where there is a sort of pseudo-stated, pseudo-unstated relationship between a non-state criminal actor, and a certain political party. and So the political party gets votes from this community in bulk, but cedes large portions of control and authority over that space to a non-state actor who's reaping the dividends of that in terms of rent, various forms of of rent and oppression. But it creates this very challenging dynamic where that non-state actor is now effectively the state and provides a whole host of security and judicial services in that arena as well. And and this particular individual, um, I think his last name was Coke, if I remember correctly. It's part of the the part of the Coke Posse, uh, a large uh, syndicate in Kingston, Jamaica, is held up in in a Garrison district called Tivoli Gardens, and he's so well ensconced in this neighborhood that the Jamaican government has to draw out the military to effectively lay siege on this community to arrest one guy at the behest of the U.S. government. And, I mean, they lay siege for days. Flights get canceled because there are fires raging. Large parts of the community end up rallying around this individual because there's this incredibly challenging, awkward, weird dynamic where, yes, he's a criminal actor, but at the same time, he's also been sort of effectively the government in this institution. And it's a great example for me of an issue uh, that, that has the title herbicide, which is this idea that, yes, you could leverage the armed forces to arrest one guy because the police are insufficient as an institution to do so, either because of corruption or simply because, a criminal network is so well ensconced in an individual neighborhood that that it's too dangerous for the police to go in without heavier firepower. But, and again, going back to that conversation on overmatch that started this, um, our talk, is just using the capabilities and the technologies and the tactics that the armed forces have is not an effective means of undergoing policing, right? It it It, it had in truth, really a negative consequence, that you ended up rallying this whole community against the state because it was such a heavy-handed enforcement technique. And so I think that's a really crystal example of some of the challenges that navies face in the maritime sphere, which is, yeah, you have overwhelming firepower, but as you can see in the case of Jamaica and Tivoli Gardens, that's not necessarily a particularly effective means of going after Fundamentally, criminal actors, especially those who have woven themselves so deeply into a lived community, which is particularly something that navies don't have a whole lot of experience with, given the the domain that they're acting in. And just to wrap up that story, this individual actually ends up escaping. He's he's later arrested, but even after this multi-day siege, uh, he ends up he ends up escaping because this is not. An effective means of policing and that the lessons and the tactics and the capabilities that militaries, navies included, bring to bear are not necessarily the most applicable for policing issues if they're not adapted for the social context that they're taking place in.
0: I want to touch on the two additional case studies you have. Uh, You look at two regions, one in Africa and one in Asia, and you compare them to the insights you gleaned from the Caribbean case study. Uh, Can you talk about those and what additional insights came from that comparative analysis?
2: Sure. So I guess to to take a pause Um, to sort of explain the structure of the book, it's got two phases to it. And so there's an extended case study, as you mentioned, which is really foundational, which is a proof of concept. It's, okay, I've had this idea that maybe we can learn something by leveraging a theory from policing, broken windows theory, into a maritime context. What does that even look like? And drawing that out really in long form and in detail in one context, a single in-depth case study. Having done that and concluded, yeah, you know, I think there's a there there. This really works. The question for me then became, is this generalizable? And this is fundamental to me as a political scientist, but also as someone who, as I stated earlier, is interested in this macro lens. I don't just want a theory that works well in the Caribbean context. I want to to understand an approach or a thought process to maritime security that has global applications so that policymakers can interact on global issues and with global partners and implement policies that are both tailored for an individual community, but founded on principles that work everywhere. And so these final two much smaller case studies, the Gulf of Guinea and the Straits of Malacca and Singapore, are an effort on my part to see whether or not the Patterns and the lessons learned in the Caribbean have applicability in those spaces, and in, in short, the answer, thankfully, is is yes. That in many of these circumstances, we see real value in thinking about maritime insecurity issues from a context perspective, and certainly we see a replication of this multidimensional challenge. And so, I mentioned earlier the relationship between illegal oil bunkering, illegal oil theft, and insurgency in Nigeria, where you have insurgents in the Niger Delta region who are fueling their campaign through the theft of oil. But it gets much more complicated and really undergirds this concept of multidimensionality in that case study, where it's not just insurgents fueling an insurgency with oil theft. It's also insurgents who are kind of part-time insurgents. So on a, on a Thursday, they might be stealing oil from uh, a wellhead to fund an insurgent effort. But on uh, another Tuesday, they're trafficking in illegal weaponry in order to save money for a fancy car or to, to save money to build a school in their community. And so even inside these individual networks, there's, I found these constant examples of multidimensionality. Again, in, in the Gulf of Guinea and certainly in Southeast Asia, we see the same thing with respect to human trafficking and illegal fishing. Uh, the International Labor Organization has done some incredible research on uh, really abhorrent conditions where individuals – and this is particularly the case – in uh, South and Southeast Asia, will spend sometimes years, uh, essentially, effectively imprisoned on illegal fishing vessels. They never see port. They have their passports confiscated, and so there's this real dynamic where one form of maritime criminality directly addresses the other. And again, in in all of these circumstances, the context. Really matters. Understanding the fact that these crimes are taking place in local communities, that the same issues of corruption and weakness and malfeasance that we talked that we just talked about with respect to the Caribbean have implications in these regions as well. And so, you know, the the long story short is I found that that many of the same challenges and the lessons that you can draw from crime being context specific and multidimensional really replicated themselves across multiple, very disparate regions.
0: These hybrid threats and multidimensional issues you highlight in the book contribute to what you call a confusion between war and crime. What lessons can actors in the maritime arena take from this research to help improve maritime security?
2: That's a great question. And I think one of the lessons that's Particularly important for the, the actors themselves, the practitioners who are out there doing this work, is how do we internalize this idea that's been growing for quite some time, that there's a much less binary perspective on war and peace and that, that enforcement bodies, coast guards, navies are increasingly asked to operate in this incredibly nebulous gray space with actors who, who, as you've mentioned, I've talked about as hybrid actors, and these are individuals who have significant capabilities and who operate across terrorism, insurgency, criminality, blending this the various categories of insecurity and crime into single organizations or single individuals or single regions. Um, and I, I think one place to start is how do we talk about better integrating a strategy of maritime security into a much broader understanding of first uh, national security and national defense, and then but overall sort of U.S. national interests in the case of the United States, but national interests for any state or government that is implementing this, that, that the, the threads connecting maritime security strategy, if there even is much of that to begin with to larger defense strategy larger equities that the U.S. in this case might have in various regions and larger equities that the U.S. has as a global power are really tenuous. And, and those linkages are critically important. And again, that speaks to this the importance of a multidisciplinary approach that folks who study piracy, and we haven't talked a whole lot about piracy, although it's, it's in the last two case studies uh, quite a bit, but folks who study piracy, for example, also have to push themselves into a dialogue on naval strategy and national security. And that can be an awkward space to interact with because oftentimes, for example, a big Navy might not care a whole lot about those issues. But as we've explored here, especially given this really nebulous space between war and peace that navies and coast guards increasingly operate in on a day-to-day basis, understanding the the tendrils that connect maritime security – to larger strategic and national objectives is an important place to start.
0: Well, Josh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, would you share with us what you're working on now? Sure. So I've got two
2: uh, related, uh, exciting sort of projects that I'm undertaking. The first is uh, starting this summer, I'll be uh, designing and teaching a course at George Washington University, my alma mater, which is a lot of fun in their master's program on security studies on piracy and irregular threats. And so I'm going to be digging a little bit more deeply into how can we bring some of these both underexplored issues like piracy, which is not talked about a whole lot in academic contexts, uh, certainly not a lot in sort of your general uh, security studies programs. How can we bring that to the fore and how can we create linkages between studies in the maritime space and irregular threats more broadly. So I'm very excited about that. And then I've recently undertaken another research project looking specifically at the relationship between piracy and political violence. And this is a nascent project, but one that I think really has a lot more space to explore. As as readers of the book will see, we often talk about piracy specifically from a private criminal perspective. So by private, we mean individuals are conducting this for personal economic gain. But there are myriad linkages between piracy and things that we would more traditionally understand as political violence. And so I'm really interested in pulling the thread on that a little bit more.
0: Best of luck with your projects. And thank you for being on the show today. Thanks very much for having me. The War for Muddy Waters Pirates, Terrorists, Traffickers, and Maritime Insecurity by Joshua Tallis is available now from Naval Institute Press. Thank you for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.